It's go time. You're listening live to Third Down Gamble. First down. Finals weekend in the Canadian Football League, and there was a lot to watch, a lot to enjoy, and a lot to talk about as we go into this podcast. Welcome to the 100th podcast of Third Down Gamble. I'm Don Charbon, along with Patrick Mooney and Heath Graham. We're glad you could join us, and thank you for all the support that we received getting to this 100th episode. It's been a lot of fun. 100 is a good benchmark, and it sure has been fun spending these episodes with you guys. And I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't thank you, Don, for all the work you've done in pulling this together. You've certainly been the leader on this podcast. Hats off to you, and appreciate the job you've done. When you started the podcast, I talked about being a part-timer and have somehow grown into a full-timer, it seems, but it has been a really enjoyable experience. And uh, to echo what Pat said, Don, your, your editing and pulling all this stuff together is paramount to the success of this podcast. So thanks for all you do. And and Pat, you've been a great co-host as well. It's been a, a really fun, really fun run. Likewise, he. We have a lot of football to talk about and some great CFL football on the weekend. We start with the Eastern Final with the Hamilton Tiger Cats going into Toronto to play the Argonauts. 21,492 in attendance. Largest crowd of the year for Toronto. And the Thai Cats start slowly. The Argonauts twice are inside the 10-yard line, come away with field goals, lead 12-0 at the half, and then a huge punt return by Poppy White. About five and a half minutes into the third quarter, flips the game, and the Argonauts watch as their lead crumbles and the Ticats go on to a 27-19 victory and advance to host the Grey Cup. It seemed to be almost a tale of two games there. Uh, you're right, Poppy White's punt return seemed to really invigorate Hamilton, but also uh, bringing Dane Evans in and, and to see what he did in that second half was pretty impressive. Jeremiah Mazzoli is deep in the Argonauts' end of the field in the second quarter, and he is back in the pocket waiting, 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 waiting for what? I don't know. And eventually he decides to roll out, gets hit from behind, fumbles the ball. The Argonauts recover. That was the last play of the game for him. Dane Evans comes in, never misses a pass for the rest of the day. 16 of 16 for 249 yards and a touchdown. And the big thing I think that Dane Evans brought was a little bit of energy, but a lot of bit of mobility. It was quite the difference between the two quarterbacks, and I believe this has solidified Dane Evans as the starter for the Grey Cup team this coming week. Going 16 for 16 in relief and leading the team back to victory, in my mind, I don't think you can leave that guy on the bench to start the Grey Cup. I absolutely agree. I guess I, you know, when the coach makes the decision to bring him in, you're right, Don. The fumble, I think, maybe made him go to that decision. Hamilton wasn't hitting on all cylinders prior to that, but uh, I was a little surprised to see Dane Evans come in that quickly in the second quarter. At that point, I thought they might give Mazzoli one more shot because up to that point on that drive, he'd moved him down the field fairly effectively. So when Evans came in and stayed in, I thought maybe it was a change of pace, but boy, how do you take him out when he's playing like that? Let's not forget there was also a near interception for the Argonauts. Were it not for an offside penalty, there would have been another turnover for Jeremiah Mazzoli. So it was definitely not the start that he was anticipating. And it's not the way he has been playing over the last several weeks. But Dane Evans came in 
and you alluded to it, Don, with some energy. He was fired up, and I believe he got the rest of that offense fired up and excited to be there as well. And we saw the result, and they turned things around and put 27 points on the board. Jalen Acklin had a career day, eight targets, eight receptions, 112 yards, averaging 14 yards a catch, his longest 32, and a touchdown. Huge, huge day for him. He got the first offensive touchdown for the Tiger Cats in that third quarter to get them into a tie. Don Jackson proved to be quite vital in this process. 16 carries for 95 yards. He's been a great addition as as a running back for Hamilton. Since he's come in, I believe that team has uh, changed a little bit in the fact that if you have a viable running game, you now have the defense on their heels a little bit. And the offensive line deserves some credit as well because they definitely opened some holes and Don Jackson was able to move through them and find the holes and, you know, almost 100 yards rushing. Another interesting turning point in this football game was late in the second quarter. Stephen Dunbar gets an out-pattern catch, turns, fumbles the ball after a hit by Enoch Moamba. Enoch Moamba tosses the ball to Shaq Richardson. Richardson runs down the field and it's Dane Evans who strips him and recovers the fumble deep in Ticats territory with just seconds remaining in the first half. If Toronto maintains possession after that turnover, they're in field goal range right there and are possibly up 15 to nothing going into the locker room at halftime. That's another key point in the competitiveness of Dane Evans. I don't know that Jeremiah Mazzoli would have been chasing that ball down the field to the same degree that Evans was. And you love to see that competitiveness from a quarterback when the offense makes a mistake and he doesn't quit on the play. And we've seen a few quarterbacks in the league with that similar style. Vernon Adams Jr. comes to mind as well. That He's a guy that's not afraid to get in there and mix it up. And that was a turning point, absolutely, to keep some of those points off the board, off the board for the Argonauts. And to have the foresight to reach out and take the ball, literally, from the hand of... Richardson, who really didn't tuck it away or secure the ball. Another turning point in the game was an interference or a non-interference between Tunde Adelike and Juan Breskison. The replay was very inconclusive. We see Adelike hit the face mask of Breskison as he's going down to the ground, but does that constitute interference? Does it not? I kind of like the no call because he, there was no intent. It was just an arm moving past. The Argonauts definitely pointed to that in their post game, saying that that was a huge moment for them because if they get that penalty, they're set up at the one-yard line and a touchdown avails. The one thing that Toronto didn't do all day was score a touchdown. I believe it was the correct non-call on this one as well. By the time the hand came into Breskison's face mask, I don't think there was a catchable ball at that point. So you were maybe looking at a face mask penalty but you're right the intent wasn't there it was just kind of a follow-through on the play and that was a good non-call in my books well I think the delicate did turn his head the, the replay shows he made an attempt to turn to see the ball and his hand just inadvertently caught it and I do agree he it, it wasn't at a time where the ball was catchable had that been a second or two before where it's impeding his vision but at that point it wasn't a playable ball and the other element I think that was an amazing play was Jagarit Davis coming off the defensive line and covering D.J. Foster out of the backfield and swatting the ball away in the end zone when McLeod Bethel-Thompson was trying to find him for another Toronto score. And again, textbook defense. He turned his head at the right time. He got his left hand out, reaching at the arm closest to the receiver. Uh, textbook play for a big man. He uh, looked like a defensive back out there. 
the Great Cup is going to be a matchup of two phenomenal defensive lines and and guys that aren't afraid to drop back and get into some of those plays. It's going to be exciting to watch. One of the things that we had discussed was at what pace does McLeod Bethel Thompson get that engine fired up? He was going pretty much from the start of the game, 24-38 for 283. But big stat, the Argonaut offense, no touchdowns. And truthfully, that's the difference in the football game. Hamilton was able to cross the goal line. Toronto was not. It was a busy day for Boris Beattie kicking the ball. He was 6 of 7 on field goals, but no points after because there were no touchdowns. Had McLeod Bethel Thompson been able to connect with Breskison on one of the three or four attempts he had in the game, I think there could have been a turning point. But it just, for whatever reason, they weren't able to connect and had some good defense again, coming up with some plays and good tight coverage. The second game of the day was in chilly Winterpeg, with the Blue Bombers hosting the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in the West Final. First time those two teams had met in a West Final since 1972 in Winnipeg. The Blue Bombers give up six turnovers, five in the first half, and yet with a strong rushing attack, managed to prevail 21-17 over the Rough Riders with a huge crowd, 31,160, braving those winds and the cold in Winnipeg. I believe it was the biggest playoff crowd in Winnipeg since 1984, if I read that correctly. An amazing crowd, considering that the weather was as cold as it was, and a really loud crowd. Even the Rough Riders spoke to after the game that that was one of the loudest crowds that they've ever had to deal with. And I think the rushing dominance, whenever a team can rush for 173 yards that in that weather, that, that's going to give them the opportunity to win the game, even despite all the turnovers that occurred in this game. I have to tip my hat to the Rough Riders defense in this one. If you look at those six turnovers, there was one really underthrown ball by Zach Claris that led to an interception. There was one interception where he was kind of under pressure and threw to a spot where there was only a Rough Rider defensive player there to scoop that one up. Other than that, those turnovers were really hard work by that Rough Riders defense in punching the ball out. The Bombers were scrapping for every inch they possibly could and the Rough Riders just continually stripped that ball away. And that was really hard-nosed defense. Unfortunately for them, the offense just couldn't convert when they got the ball back. Nick Dembski started the uh, turnover parade for the Blue Bombers by bobbling a touchdown pass in the end zone. Ed Ganey scooped that up. And of the turnovers, that was probably the weirdest one that the Rough Riders got. All the rest, as you say, were legitimately punch-outs. Uh, errant passes that were intercepted. It's rare that a team gets six turnovers in their favor and still loses the football game. That speaks to two things, either the other team's ability to overcome adversity or your inability to capitalize on those situations. The Rough Riders' Cody Fajardo had a big fumble in the third quarter that hurt the Rough Riders when they were in scoring position. Taken on the whole, each team gave away points. And the Rough Riders were fortunate to recover some of their own fumbles. They put the ball on the ground three other times that they managed to fall back on it as well. So I believe that cold weather did play some havoc on those offensive guys and their ability to hang on to the ball. You certainly saw some uncharacteristic fumbles by players that don't normally drop the ball like that. And... uh, it was a really hard-fought and, and frigid battle out there. I think with six turnovers, 
it does also speak to the caliber of defense that Winnipeg has, and we've talked about that all year. To be able to overcome and hold Saskatchewan off the scoreboard, we can say Saskatchewan's offense was somewhat inept, but you know the defense has to stop them, and, and Winnipeg's defense stepped up when it mattered. Cody Fajardo, quarterback of the Rough Riders, 19-27 for 265 and a touchdown pass. Zach Kolaris for the Blue Bombers, 17 of 21 for 229, one TD, three INTs. Big seed change was when, in the third quarter, the Blue Bombers started to just give the ball to Andrew Harris, and he could chunk 8 to 13 yards every time he touched it. The Rough Riders, for whatever reason, didn't have an answer for him in that third quarter. The seven weeks of rest for Andrew Harris certainly paid off. He came into this game looking fast and strong, and it's the... Yards after contact for Andrew Harris that continues to amaze me as a running back. He'll he'll run into a wall and seem to spin off and get an extra three or four yards every time. And uh, 5.9 yard average on 23 carries really sets your team up well for second downs and moving the ball. Harris, 23 carries for 136 yards and a touchdown. Nick Dembski had three carries for 22 yards for Winnipeg. They put up great numbers rushing. They did, and the strength of... Winnipeg's team all year has been both their offensive and defensive lines and on offense that line was able to continue to advance the run two drives over 70 yards and the Rough Riders did not have the answer they have big men up front but that offensive line is just so dominant that you're going to really struggle when you've got a back of Andrew Harris's caliber behind them that can find those holes and get through and He's, as you said, Heath, he always seems to fall forward. You don't often stand Andrew Harris up. And you look at that offensive line as well. Zach Claris was sacked one time in this game versus Cody Fajardo being sacked five times. So you talk about the turnover battle, but the quarterback protection, I think, was key in this one as well. Micah Johnson in the postgame interview talked about the fact that Harris got so many yards and he felt that the Rough Riders just weren't hitting the gaps properly. And he gave credit to Harris for finding the gaps that the Rough Riders were availing. And he said that's one of the great things about Harris is that he has the patience when he's running to take a look and see where the the holes are. And there were holes. When Ed Ganey, a defensive halfback, is tackling Andrew Harris time and time and time again, you know he's made a lot of yards on that carry. On the one touchdown carry, the television showed how Andrew Harris could get through a small hole. And he's a big man, but yet he seems to find those. And his vision is such that he's always moving forward. He doesn't stop and wait for the play to develop. He's moving forward. He uses his vision to step into where the hole is. And if there's not a hole, he seems to be able to slip off the hip of one of his linemen and and still find positive yards. I think a lot of that is trust in your offensive line and opening the hole as well. It might not be there when you get the ball and you're you're counting on it being there in time and again by the time he hit where the hole was, the offensive line had opened it up for him. Dekeel Williams was massive for the Rough Riders. Four receptions, 108 yards and a long 67-yard touchdown that put the Riders back into the lead. And of course, he had on that final drive for Saskatchewan, the third down gamble catch that set the Riders up in the Winnipeg side of the field. The booth reviewed. It was called a catch on the field. The left hand was underneath the football. There was a lot of football touching the ground there too. So it's... <laughs> this must have been a case that the booth didn't have enough evidence to overturn that catch because when you do see it, 
after the game, it doesn't look like it was a catch. I agree with you, Pat. I think that's exactly right. If they had called it an incomplete pass and reviewed, I don't think there was enough to call it a pass. And they called it at the time a successful completion and they deemed there wasn't enough evidence to overturn it. So a bit of a controversial one. Fortunately, it didn't affect the outcome of the game. If Saskatchewan had gone down and scored a touchdown and ended up winning the game, that would be a a whole different conversation we'd be having right now. But it was a a very big play, and unfortunately, Duke Williams seemed to have injured himself on that one as well. That took him out of the game, and that took that weapon out of the game for the Rough Riders. And on third down, their next time that they had to face that they bring in Mitchell Picton from the bench who hadn't played all day, and they call a quick pattern to him. He steps forward and Nick Taylor beats him to the football, knocks it down, and that essentially clinches the West Final for Winnipeg. Saskatchewan was 30 yards away from winning it. It, It's enough to, I think, scare the Blue Bombers going forward that this one could have got away. And had Brett Lothar made the earlier field goal, they were in field goal range and that would have been enough to win as well. So it was, uh, you know, a lot of ifs and buts, but a great effort, I think, by Saskatchewan to really put, I think, the first scare of the season into the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I think Calgary did that nicely way back when the Jake Mayer show was in town. The Blue Bombers, they were heavy favorites going into this football game and Saskatchewan gave a good account of themselves However, for the Rough Riders, it's the second time in a row they've lost the West Final to the Blue Bombers, once in Regina in 2019, once in Winnipeg in 2021. And then you can count the Western semifinal the year before. It seems like Winnipeg has their number. Second down. For the 10th time, it's Winnipeg versus Hamilton in the Grey Cup. Overall, the Blue Bombers have won seven times over Hamilton. Hamilton has won twice over Winnipeg. And the last time Hamilton Tiger Cats beat the Blue Bombers in the Grey Cup was 1965, 22-16 in the uh, Wind Bowl, as they called it. Interesting little tidbit. Kenny Plain is the only Winnipeg quarterback to win multiple Grey Cups and the only one to win back-to-back, and he did that twice, 58-59 and 61-62. and 62. Zach Kolaris now has that opportunity. It's a real classic Grey Cup matchup when you look at the fact that these two teams have played each other nine times over the course of the league history and they're coming up to their 10th matchup. Uh, Especially considering how much time Winnipeg has also spent in the East Division of all those years. So for them to have 10 matchups in the Grey Cup, it's an age-old rivalry. At the start of the year, these two teams were probably the odds-on favorite to appear in the Grey Cup and both managed to get back to the Grey Cup in successive years. So there's going to be a lot of storylines about back-to-back. 2019, we saw that Hamilton was probably entering the game as the favorite. Winnipeg went in and took it away. Hamilton at home has that advantage in this game. We also know that Hamilton is the one team that hasn't won a Grey Cup in the 2000s. And I believe they're now 0-3 in Grey Cup opportunities since then. So this is a lot of pressure on this Hamilton Tiger Cats team heading into this week to win at home and to end that long drought. 
Hamilton and Winnipeg do have a long history. They played four times in five years in the late 50s and early 60s. Two games of note, the first ever overtime game, Kenny Plain scoring the winning touchdown for Winnipeg in 59, and the Fog Bowl. It was the 50th Grey Cup. It was the only Grey Cup game to be played over two days. The fog rolled in off of the lake, and it became so thick that by halftime, the fans and the television audience couldn't see the game anymore. And by about 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter, the officials said that's enough. So they played the part two on a Sunday afternoon. Of course, Grey Cups at that time were played on Saturdays. No more scoring, and Winnipeg held on to win. Also of note in the history of Hamilton-Winnipeg Grey Cups, as we record this on December the 7th, it was 86 years ago this very day that Winnipeg became the first Western team to win the Grey Cup, defeating the Hamilton Tigers. That's right. The Pegs, I think they were known at that time. Had that team not won the Grey Cup, that team may have disbanded. There was sort of this notion that what are we doing this for if we can't beat the East? But they did, and it was huge. And then Winnipeg again won in 39 during the war years in 41, and then a whole slew of wins in the 50s and 60s, twice in the 80s. And then, of course, what sort of earmarked their drought was the 1990 win over the Edmonton football team. And then they finally snapped that skid in 2019 with their win in Calgary over Hamilton. Winnipeg is a minus four favorite. That seems a little generous to me, having seen the caliber of team Winnipeg has, but I I think that there has to be some credence given to the hometown crowd. It's not often that you get to play in front of your hometown. We saw Hamilton certainly rise to the occasion in the second half of the Eastern final. And uh, I think this could be interesting if Hamilton happens to get off to a fast start and if Winnipeg isn't able to play error-free football, which we certainly saw against Saskatchewan. Maybe the rust is off, though. If Winnipeg is there, I think four points could be generous. Four points is a pretty accurate line, in my opinion, given what we did see out of Hamilton in that game against Toronto. This was a Tiger Cats team that had only beaten Toronto once out of four attempts earlier this season, and they got it all together when it mattered. We saw Dane Evans come in and hasn't thrown an incompletion yet in the playoffs. I think four points is about where it should be. Winnipeg should be favored to win. They are, but that home field advantage for the Tiger Cats is going to make this one a closer game than it might appear when you're comparing lineups. We talk of home field advantage. Now, the Tiger Cats are literally the home team, and home teams typically fare well in Grey Cups. Here's a curious number, though. The last time a non-divisional team won the Grey Cup in the other team's division, if that makes sense, was Montreal in 2009, defeating the Rough Riders in Edmonton. So since then, if the game was played in the East, the East representative won. If the game was played in the West, the West representative has won. That's a really interesting stat. But you can also just take all those stats and throw them out the window because what happens on game day is going to happen regardless of whether it's in the East or in the West. We've seen upsets during that run as well. Toronto over Calgary is the one that comes to mind where a 9-9 Argonauts team won in 2017. I might argue that the uh, the Ottawa Red Blacks win in 2016 might have been an, considered an upset too. But again, I think you get a bump because it's easier for teams that stay within their division to get more fans to support them 
at the game. And of course, with Hamilton, the game is now completely sold out. Most likely, you're going to see the vast, vast majority of the people in the stands wearing black and gold. I think this is a great opportunity for the Tiger Cats and for their caretaker, Bob Young, to have a showcase. They put a lot into the Hamilton Tiger Cats in the last few years, and this is a true showcase for both the city and the league in that they're going to be able to host this game. And I, I wishing I was out there and could be attending all the festivities because I think it's going to be fantastic. The weather is also appearing at this point, but it's going to be plus four. And right now they say sunny. Again, anything in the positives at this time of year is going to allow the teams to both bring their best forward. Maybe that'll help the Winnipeg Blue Bombers hold onto the ball a little bit better. It won't be a, a frozen rock like they were kicking around in Winnipeg last weekend. Curiously, the last latest Grey Cup game ever played was December the 11th, 1937. Toronto defeating Winnipeg 4-3 to at Varsity Stadium. This is the latest Grey Cup game ever played. The East, of all the Grey Cups that have been played, the East has won 64, the West 43. And since 1958, when the CRU became the CFA and the CFA became the CFL, West has won 38 games, the East 25 games. I think a couple of keys in this Grey Cup matchup are going to be the defensive lines of both teams that we've kind of talked about earlier in this episode. Hamilton was the best defensively against the run this season. So when you've got a team like the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and Andrew Harris in that offensive line, that's one of those key matchups that you're going to watch for all day. And then, of course, that Winnipeg defensive line is, if not the best in the league, certainly in the top two in the league with their rush ends and then Jake Thomas and the stove up the middle. It's a real real battle of defensive lines, and this one is going to be the key. Linebacker is also going to play into it because Hamilton, I think, has a great linebacking core led by Simone Lawrence. Winnipeg, led by Adam Bighill, also has a good core, and it's really going to be uh, the linebackers having to step up and get into those gaps to stop Andrew Harris. The only time the two teams met this season was in Winnipeg on opening night. And the Blue Bombers prevailed 19-6. to Jeremiah Mazzoli went all the way for Hamilton that night through two interceptions. Winnipeg at minus four favorites. I think that line represents home field advantage for the Tiger Cats. The Rough Riders talked about how loud it was, how difficult it was to get the play calls, how to hear the play calls in the huddle, how to get the snap count heard across the line and especially out to the receivers. And that diminished their capacity to affect what they wanted to do on offense. Winnipeg now is going to face that in Hamilton. And you've got to believe that that Tiger Cat crowd is going to be extra excited because of what happened in Calgary in 2019. I would say that Zach Kolaris has enough experience playing in the CFL that he can tune out the crowd in Hamilton. It'll be an interesting dynamic for sure. I don't know if Tim Hortons Field can get quite to the same level of noise that Investors Group Field did last week for that West Division final, but it could certainly play a factor. I don't think it's a question for Zach Claris to tune it out. I think it's whether or not he's going to be heard. I think Tim Horton's field is not as conducive as you say, Heath, to the sound coming across, but I know those fans there are certainly going to be trying to to raise the roof. I think when we compare these two offenses, Winnipeg's offense is a veteran offense. They've worked together for a long time. I think they'll be prepared for this because Michael Shea is an outstanding coach. And when we compare the quarterbacks, Caleros 
he's very comfortable in this system. He's had an MOP type year. I wouldn't be surprised if he was named the MOP. And the advantage that Hamilton may have is that Dane Evans hasn't had a lot of film, honestly. Uh, he has one game that he's, he's played the majority of it. He played a couple um, earlier, but honestly, that's the one thing that their offense has going for them. Because when you compare the two offenses, I think Winnipeg has advantages across the board in running backs, receivers, offensive line, and quarterback. The wild card is going to be if Dane Evans can come out and not have any missed passes once again would be phenomenal. But we did see what Dane Evans did in the 2019 Grey Cup against this same Winnipeg defense, and it did not go well for Dane and the Tiger Cats. Hamilton really has to step forward and establish a running game so that you can keep the defense of Winnipeg on its toes. If they're able to get a lead, Winnipeg that is, and then they can pin their ears back and go after Dane Evans, we know that there's going to be pressure there. Yet if they establish that running game, they may not be able to pin back so hard and then it gives some options for the quarterback. Are we running or are we passing? And the defense has to at least think about it rather than just stepping in hard. It almost behooves the Tiger Cats to get out to an early lead, not unlike the Saskatchewan Rough Riders did, force Winnipeg out of their comfort zone. If Hamilton can get up by two scores, say, that may change this game's dynamic quite a bit for the Blue Bombers. The bottom line is you've got 60 minutes to prove it one way or the other. There's a lot of calmness in that Winnipeg locker room and on those sidelines. We saw that in this game against the Rough Riders. The five turnovers in the first half would crush the spirit of most teams, where Winnipeg went to the sidelines, shook it off, next man up, came out, turned it over again, and they they didn't panic. They didn't go away from what they do best, and they continued to chip away at Saskatchewan all day and turn the tide when it mattered at the end of the game. And Heath, how about those pool tracker results? With one week and one game remaining, Dini 13 is in the lead, followed by Don Charbent and Pat Mooney. I don't believe that Dini can be caught in this one, but we'll see what our Great Cup picks look like and where it all shakes down at the end. Third down. It's our 100th show, and he's done some research on the 100s for us. I have, and... Uh, some really interesting stats that I uncovered in looking at some of these numbers. One interesting one is that over the course of the CFL, there have been five punts of 100 yards or more. The longest punt on record was in 1977 by Zenon Andrusician, 108 yards, which was matched by another kicker in 2011. Can anybody name who that was? Chris Milo? Chris Milo is correct. 2011, 108-yard punt. I bet you he had the wind at his back on that one. And old Taylor Field, not (laughs) much doubt about that. Now for a a newer stat, this one goes to quarterback efficiency rating, which hasn't been kept in the CFL for super long. But there are two CFL quarterbacks that have an efficiency rating of over 100 for their career. One is active. One is currently a coach in the CFL. Any guesses on that one? I think I know the active one. Bo Levi. I'd go active as well. Nope. Dave Dickinson. Had a career passing efficiency of 110.39, leading all CFL quarterbacks in quarterback efficiency. So is it Dane Evans? 
It is not. <laughs> now, this is, it is somebody that we talked a lot about this year and his ability to move the ball, but maybe not so much in the red zone. Trevor Harris? Career. Now, up. this is up until the end of the 2019 season, so maybe things got a little bit skewed this year. I haven't checked the numbers, but a career QB efficiency of 102.82. Wow. That was unexpected. Now, some continuing with some offensive numbers, 100-yard rushing games in a career. I'm sure you can guess the top two pretty easily, so I'm going to throw those two out there for you. Mike Pringle had 70 100-yard games. The great George Reed had 66. What running back is third with 38 career 100-yard games? Quite a drop-off between George Reed and the next one on the list. Drummond? Calvin Anderson. Nope. Part of the Thunder and Lightning duo from Winnipeg. Charles Roberts? 3,800 yard games. <laughs> now, who holds the record for... Actually, no, I'll throw this one out. Mike Pringle has the record for 100 yard games in one season. How many 100 yard games did he have in one season? 11. I'll guess 12. Keep going. 14. 1,400 yard games. That's an incredible stat. There's a three-way tie next with 10 100-yard games with Willie Burden, Willard Reeves, and Robert Mims. One Stampeder and two Blue Bombers. Okay, how about catching the ball? 100-yard receiving games. Who are the top two receivers all-time for 100-yard games? Mervyn Fernandez. Milt Stiegel. Milt Stiegel is second with 54. And the leader has 64. Brian Kelly. No, he probably had at one time in his career, possibly Doug Flutie throwing to him, possibly Jeff Garcia throwing the ball to him. Alan Pitts. 64 100-yard games. Wow. The all-time single-season tackle record is held by Solomon Elamimian with 144 tackles. How many times does Elamimium appear in the top five? Is he in the top five for most tackles in a season? Four. Three. He's the number one, number two, and number four all-time tackler per season with 144, 143, and 129 tackles. Amazing linebacker. First ballot Hall of Famer. Absolutely. One of the best defensive players, certainly, of this latest generation. And the last one is the five players that have scored 100 or more touchdowns in their CFL careers. Nobody active. Milt Stiegel, George Reed. Milt Stiegel, 147. George Reed, 137. You've got the top two. Mike Pringle. Mike Pringle, 137, tied with George Reed. Correct. Another, the fourth place has already come up once tonight. Willie Burton. Drummond. Nope. Alan Pitts. Oh. Alan Pitts, 117. And the fifth with 104 touchdowns, G. Roy Simon. And one final record that has nothing to do with the number of 100, but I just thought it was an incredible stat. There's a player named Paul Williams that played for both Winnipeg and Saskatchewan in the 1960s era, I believe. 70s. 70s, 1970s. Thank you, Don. And the interesting stat with Paul Williams is he scored touchdowns seven different ways in his career. He had a rushing touchdown, a receiving touchdown, an interception return for a touchdown, fumble return, kickoff return, punt return, and missed field goal. That's incredible. This was awesome. Final thoughts on the 108th Grey Cup 
sold out in Hamilton. The host, Hamilton Tiger Cats, playing their arch nemesis in the Grey Cup. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Winnipeg has a decided edge in head-to-head matchups in Grey Cup history, as we've noted. Who's going to win this? I have to pick Winnipeg. I think they're the better team. I think they've had an outstanding season, and it would be a major upset if Hamilton wins this. I think they should win easily, and if the spread is only four, I think they'll cover it. Home crowd, adrenaline pumping. Winnipeg, by rights, is the better team, but they have to prove it. I would not consider it an upset if Hamilton wins this football game. I'm picking the Blue Bombers as well, but as we have mentioned numerous times, anything can happen on game day. Hamilton playing motivated at home to end that long drought could go that way, but if I'm looking at it, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers have played like defending champions all year, and I don't think they're ready to give up their grip on that Grey Cup just yet. Seconds left. Victory formation for the Blue Bombers. The clock is now empty. Zero. Zach Kolaris, last snap of the game. He holds on to it. He goes down on a knee. The game is over. The Blue Bombers have won the West Division Final. They're going to the Grey Cup for a rematch with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And this was some spectacular, sensational, dramatic, knockdown, drag-about football game, Doug Brown. Ah, you have to talk about a football team that has to come over. So many adverse elements. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio worth watching.